Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, June 23rd. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, today, Joe, we are going to kick around a few topics, uh, soccer balls of ideas, if you will. And hopefully we're going to push them over the goal line into the sweet celebratory embrace of enlightenment. Yeah, we're going to try and do that. But I don't have a soccer analogy for how to handle good faith, but we're going to try and handle those balls in good faith. Uh, We're not. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good faith. Um, (laughs) And we're going to try to explore the ideas from all sides, uh, you know, like a corner kick. And uh, oh, I got it. I got it. All right, we're going to play good, clean soccer. We're not going to get any red cards in this one. No, 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 no penalties. We're going to we're going to do it nice and clean. So there you go. Yeah, we we don't come from the ivory tower. We're not up in the in the press reporting box. We we don't see everything. We we don't. Our, our view isn't sacrosanct. We don't know everything. So we'll try and uh, give a little charity to that. Then also, before I ask Evan what he wants to talk about today, I would like to have a or uh, make a small announcement before we start going today. Uh, We are going to move to an every other week schedule, a biweekly of the every other week type schedule from now on. So we're going to have a podcast this week because you're obviously listening to it. Next week, there will not. The week after, there will be, and so on and so forth until um, some future time that will probably move back to weekly, but that is not the time right now. So, Just wait till we have our daily podcast. Oh, boy, the daily podcast. And it will actually be every day, not not this five, week, five days a week bullshit like the other daily podcasts do. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Seven days a week, even on Christmas. So, anyway, with that, hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. Hey, um, what do you want to talk about? Well, seeing as I'm out of soccer metaphors, I'm going to talk about black film. More and more, we're realizing that so many parts of our society are interconnected and clearing deficiencies in one area can help move us towards social progress, even in ways that we don't quite think about. So when we think about diversity and representation in film, we have to start talking about the work and contributions of black film directors. So this week I'm going to present to you Evan's top 10 movies directed by black people. All right. Number 10 is the movie A Screaming Man. This was directed in 2010 by the French Chadian director Mahamat Saleh Haroun. It is an intimate drama of a man living in Chad who is embroiled, sort of caught in the crossfire of the Chadian Civil War. And when his son supplants him in his position as the pool attendant of an upscale hotel in Chad, he appeases local officials 
by agreeing to conscript his son into the war to get him out of the way so he can get his old job back. And A Screaming Man is a beautiful film, both in terms of its visual style and its thematic composition, in which we see how the personal interacts with the political and how our own interpersonal relationships can be swallowed by the greater forces around us. It was the first Chadian film to win any award at the Cannes Film Festival, taking home the third place prize at the 2010 ceremony. It is streaming on Amazon Prime for those of you who have access to that. And I highly recommend it if you're looking for some authentic black African cinema. All right. Number nine. Number nine is Widows, the 2018 film directed by Steve McQueen, in which a group of women must band together to pull off a heist that their husbands had been planning before their untimely deaths in order to gain financial security for themselves. Widows is perhaps the best heist movie ever devised. It is socially relevant, also gorgeously shot, perfectly directed by Steve McQueen, who has been really knocking it out of the park in the last decade of film. And Widows is a fun movie, but one that also asks, what is it like to live in an unjust world when systems around us are so corrupt that they fail to uphold their core tenets? How can the individual respond? And that sort of leads to much of the narrative tension. And I think it is a wonderful film that can be enjoyed intellectually and viscerally. Widows, Steve McQueen. Number eight, Mulata, directed by Usman Semben. In the 1960s, Semben directed another very excellent film called Black Girl, which is considered the first black African film. And he continued to work on his own unique style and honed his craft. And in 2004, he released Mulata, which is a movie about a woman in a rural African tribe who embraces a doctrine of ritual protection to stop young women who come to her from being subjected to female genital mutilation. It is visually and narratively surprising. It is essentially devoid of Western cinematic influence. And I highly recommend it if you're able to track it down. I know that due to its rather unconventional production and distribution methods, it is not widely available. I saw it in a film history class, but Mulata is definitely one of the greatest movies directed by a person of color. Number seven is Precious by Lee Daniels, came out in 2009. Many of you probably already understand the context of the film. It is about a young woman who lives in extreme poverty. She deals with rape and abuse on a constant basis, but she nonetheless is attempting to get her life together and attempt to make something 
better for herself, even though so many factors make that near impossible. Precious is a deeply moving and empathetic film with a fantastic lead performance by Gabri Sidibe. I'm sure I butchered that and I apologize for that. But nonetheless, it is absolutely worth checking out beyond all of the cheap jokes that came about in the couple of years after it was released. Number six, The Hate You Give. The Hate You Give is perhaps the greatest young adult adaptation ever put on film, and I mean that wholeheartedly. It's about a young woman whose life is changed after she witnesses the murder of her unarmed friend at the hands of police officers. Obviously, it is extremely relevant right now. It is so moving. The way that director George Tillman Jr. is able to build empathy and coax deep emotion, even with such young characters, is truly remarkable. It was one of my favorite films in 2018, the year that it came out. And it certainly transcends the trappings of the young adult genre to be a powerful and moving statement on race. Number five is Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins, Best Picture winner at the Oscars in 2016. Moonlight tells the story of the life of a young man named Chiron in three parts. First, as a child, second, as a teen, and finally, as an adult. Chiron attempts to navigate many conflicting identities regarding relating to his race, his socioeconomic status, and his homosexuality. Chiron is hardened by the world around him, and we see that process. We see how different factors outside of his control shape his life and modify the experience that he is able to have. Moonlight is an exercise in deeply intimate filmmaking, and it is worthy of the accolades that it has received in the past half decade. Number four is Selma, directed by Ava DuVernay in 2014. Selma is a more or less conventional biopic about Martin Luther King Jr., played by David Oyelowo. And his performance is absolutely lived in and complexed, nuanced, and fantastic as we get a realistic view of a man who history has been content to simplify, perhaps is the best way to put it. We finally get to understand Martin Luther King as a man who did face internal conflict as well as external instead of just a one-dimensional saint that many people tend to use for their own political tools. Ava DuVernay has released several wonderful projects, but I still have never had any of her work affect me on an emotional level in the same way that Selma did. 
Number three, Sorry to Bother You, directed by Boots Riley from 2018. Sorry to Bother You is, without a doubt, one of the most original movies that I have ever seen. A young telemarketer named Cassius Green finds that he can make more sales when he speaks in his white voice, which is provided humorously by David Cross, Tobias of Arrested Development fame. Sorry to Bother You starts off as a side-splitting racial satire that in a second act twist that I will not spoil becomes something else almost entirely while still building on the themes from the original part of the movie. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where the twist in a movie just absolutely lands with you and you know immediately once you see it that this is going to become one of your favorite movies. But that's what it was like for me watching Sorry to Bother You. It's smart. It's funny. It is absolutely inventive, both formally and narratively. And Sorry to Bother You is one of my favorite films in recent memory. Number two, Do the Right Thing, directed by Spike Lee in 1989. This is probably going to be the most famous movie on the list and is one of the most famous movies to deal with the subject of race. On a hot day in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of New York City, racial tensions boil over around the infamous Sal's Famous Pizzeria and their decision to only put photos of Italian-Americans on the wall. Do the Right Thing is a movie that I have wrestled with now for years, but what remains constant is its vitality. The discourse that Spike Lee was attempting to start in 1989 has really sadly not progressed as much as it should have in the interceding years. We are still attempting to understand the value of black lives, especially in their relative relationship to white property. We are still trying to grapple with issues of equity in terms of who lives in a community and who runs commerce in a community. And what I what really struck me in my most recent viewing was the compassion that Spike Lee shows towards the majority of his characters in that film in a way that I didn't pick up on before. And so the most my most recent viewing, which just came a couple weeks ago, the the death of Radio Rahim really got to me. And overall, it is a provocative movie with a controversial ending that we are still talking about decades later. Do the Right Thing is an all-time classic. And now, my number one movie on this list is Fruitvale Station, directed by Ryan Coogler in 2013. Fruitvale Station tells the story of the last day in the life of Oscar Grant, a man who was shot in the back by San Francisco BART police officers and had his life prematurely ended. This is a movie that 
examines what we lose when a human life is taken away. We don't just lose everything that that life has been. We lose everything that that life could ever be. We lose the second chance. We lose the potential for something better. And perhaps most tragically of all, we lose the social connections that that person has built. I've been a little bit upset at the trajectory of Ryan Coogler's career. I think he's been taking projects that have bigger budgets and bigger paychecks for him, franchises in the MCU and the Rocky franchise that I'll be honest, have not landed with me quite so much. But Fruitvale Station is one of the finest movies that I've ever seen. And if you have not seen it yet, I would recommend that you remedy this at your earliest convenience. This list is far from objective. There ideally would be much better representation for women in the director's chair. That's something that the entire film universe is grappling with. Furthermore, I'm well aware that many of these films are all from the past decade. I can do better to educate myself on the history of black film. I am not the person who is qualified to speak to the absolute essence of black film, but I do think it's worth it to highlight some of these fantastic and gripping movies as a starting point, a way to diversify your viewing even a little bit, and I promise you, you'll find something on here that you really enjoy. Oh, that was very nice. Thanks. That was a lot of talking for me. You like uh, you like movies, Joe? Uh, occasionally. I know. Hard, hard, hard question. Yeah. I mean, I like movies. I just don't watch them nearly as much. Um, it's hard. You know, I've said it before. It's hard to watch new things when you're just watching Making a Murderer for like the 10th time. You know? You know? Lots of takes takes time <laughs> you did move closer to manitowoc county yes so. I, I and i've been there i i went there Ooh. i drove like, I, I drove past the avery property oh shit like for that reason to go find it or i i i was just doing a driving day so that just was one of the destinations gotcha yeah so Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, black cinema, not not making a murderer. <laughs> yeah, I, I love those movies, and I will go on record as saying it. Joe. Evan. What would you like to talk about this fine day? I want to talk about something that is so unbelievably stupid. Um, this came up during the week, and I saw it on Twitter, and I retweeted it, and then Evan later was like you know i was totally going to send you this if you hadn't already retweeted it but i sent it to you anyway and <laughs> it is this article so uh fox news is in court more specifically uh for some issues that tucker carlson got himself into for uh an alleged slandering of karen mcdonald or mcdougall dougal 
Yeah. She's a uh, former Playboy model who, if you know, you remember a few seasons ago in this, you know, wonderful show that we call Life, uh, there was a subplot where a porn star slept with Donald Trump and got paid sums of money to be quiet about it. Well, that was Stormy Daniels, but there was another porn star who was alleged to have slept with uh, Donald Trump and was paid to keep it quiet, and that person, alleged person, was Karen McDougal. Well, she is uh, suing Tucker Carlson for slander over some comments that he made characterizing her on his show, Tucker or the Tucker Carlson. Oh yeah. It's Tucker Carlson tonight, which is his show on primetime, uh, Fox news TV, which, oh man, I think he has what used to be Bill O'Reilly's slot, but anyway, he's being sued and their defense in this lawsuit is that Tucker Carlson has an opinion show and he can't be held accountable for fact-checking, for looking up to see if something's right. And he can't, he is, it can't be found to be malicious because he just didn't look it because he's just going on TV, just spouting off his opinion. He can't, he they are saying he doesn't report the facts which is absolutely ridiculous they do not present the show that this is just some guy's wild ramblings of what he thinks is going on they paint it as a real picture of what is happening and you would expect even if it's opinion even if you have an opinion show that those opinions would be informed by facts. I think that's a reasonable assumption. I mean, you, I mean, Evan and I, we both try and form our opinions based on facts. It's not just wild conjecture. And this is a line that Fox News has taken for a good long time. Fox News is actually in another lawsuit involving uh, some of the information that they put out at the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, where they severely downplayed uh, the severity of the coronavirus. And they're basically saying, well, you know, we don't have a responsibility. Uh, Free speech covers lying and not presenting things truthfully. And I just find it absolutely nuts that they don't have to be in any way to the truth. And, you know, it's not even just Fox News that does this. So in newspapers, there are the opinion sections of newspapers. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure at least our audience is at least aware of those. But these opinion sections at newspapers, and I guess on TV, aren't held anywhere close to the same scrutiny that the actual news parts are held to. Like if you're reporting actual news at the Wall Street Journal, you have a very high bar to clear of what is factual and what they'll print. But if it's opinion, they'll basically let them print just about fucking anything, any wild take. 
Carl Rove is a regular contributor on the uh, Wall Street Journal opinion section calling on what Democrats need to do. And it might as well be a fucking wolf commenting on how sheep need to better protect themselves. You know, (laughs) it is ridiculous. And Fox News does it to a glaring, you know, a, a much higher degree. You know, they have their news in the afternoon and during the day, but their whole evening block is nothing but a filled with, quote, opinion, uh, you know, essentially columns, but they're shows. And this lets, for whatever reason, this lets Tucker Carlson, Janine Pirro, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, all these people just off the hook to just wildly gesticulate to an audience of people who are going to take it as full fact and not some sort of nuanced swarmy, oh, you know, we can all have opinions, but, you know, I, 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 everything I say is supposed to be taken with a grain of salt. It's just ridiculous. I, I, they, I mean, they're in court basically saying that Tucker Carlson can't be held accountable for what he says because he's just going off and spouting off and saying nonsense. And he has a right to just go and say nonsense. And I think that's nonsense. <laughs> so I share the outrage, but I think it's maybe directed in a slightly different vector Because, come on, we know that that is absolutely what Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are doing. We know. They're just, yeah, we know. And so it doesn't come as a surprise when they try to claim in court, well, he's lying and everybody knows that he's lying. Because that's the gist of their claim, that he doesn't have to, what he has to say doesn't be, what he says doesn't have to be true because people don't expect him to tell the truth. But that second part is where the rub really comes in, is that when you have on your network, you know, that constant little box that says Fox News, that is what you are selling it as. Again, like Joe was saying, there's no disclaimer that says, hey, take this with a grain of grain of salt. Their brand is fair and balanced. So they are telling people this guy is who's fair and balanced. And then they're turning around and saying, hey, he's not fair and balanced. He's, you know, whatever. He's just some shithead that we allow on air and have make millions of dollars off of. Yeah. And they can't have it both ways. That's the thing is that if you are going to try to claim that everybody knows that he's not beholden to the truth, then you have to make sure that everybody knows that he's not beholden to the truth. But that's the part that's not going on. And that's where the bullshit meter goes off the charts. Coming up at nine o'clock, some shithead spouts off some random bullshit. We'll hear from him next on Tucker Carlson tonight. After the break, more claims that I have not fact checked because you know that I'm not really serious, right? But who needs facts? What if they were like this? What if the facts were aligned with what I say? Um, you know, I once saw a joke, but I feel like this would have some real uh, gumption. What if in, you know, the kind of news world, any th- time something was an opinion, 
it started it had to start off with in my opinion <laughs> but that's what they always tell you not to do in school you know they're like oh well we'll know it's your opinion uh, and I, yeah. we, we, we don't always know you know it's <laughs> yeah it's, it's very tough when we live in a media landscape where people just accept certain voices as gospel and i mean I'm guilty of it. I'm probably not going to disagree with John Oliver too forcefully. I generally trust what Ezra Klein says, but at the same time, there's this asymmetry to it where I think we can have a better trust that John Oliver and Ezra Klein are doing research and fact checking themselves. So I don't know. Well, yeah, that was one thing John Stewart always said is that it, if it if uh, what he was talking about wasn't true, then it wouldn't be funny. Like, <laughs> like no one would take it seriously if it wasn't true. Because if you just started making up a whole bunch of bullshit, you know, especially in politics, you can just go on forever. There is no ceiling. There's nothing capping you. Um, so, but there has to be some element of truth to it. But like, so and there is some. It, in an intellectual sense, the kind of, you know, don't say this is an opinion thing. Someone will know if something's an opinion, if they already know something about what's going on. Like if they know kind of the facts of what's happening in something and can come to terms that they understand that that's, you know, what someone is saying is their opinion on how things should be or, you know, take on what something means. But if you don't have, an, you know, the kind of backing uh, and understanding of the facts of something, opinion can be really just be taken as a full disclosure of what is accepted truth. That this happens sometimes. Like, you know, again, in newspapers, like in the some people don't understand that the opinion section is just a bunch of independent writers who come together. They take it as, you know, if Brett Stevens writes an article on healthcare, some people will be like, Oh, so that's the New York times take on healthcare. And it's no, it's Brett Stevens take on healthcare, but they don't, you know, there, there's this divide. We need a, I mean, there needs to be a clear delineation of when an opinion piece is an opinion piece and not just a statement of facts and best judgment on a, a situation. All right. So I have to admit that I've started watching the newsroom and when they are, they're, they're doing their, I'm not very far into it right now. So don't, don't ask me about season three or even the end of season one, but they're trying to build this thing in their newsroom called News 2.0, where it's it's better than all this. It cuts through the clutter. And they ask three questions. Number one, is this information that voters need in the voting booth? Number two, is this the best poss- possible version of the argument? And number three, is all of the information in its historical context? And... That is though having those three things met is a pretty high bar. So I agree then to that extent, Joe, that if we have that standard, then we have to have it be very clear when that standard is not being met 
in publications that peddle news. Right, because the the opinion sections can seem very similar to the news sections. They're not far off. And, you know, on cable news, all the news sections, you know, they intersperse it with opinion. They bring in all the fucking talking heads and all the pundits and all this. And everyone comes in and weighs in on something, gives their opinions and blah, 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 blah. It's all so much. And, um, yeah, there's, there needs to be a clear distinction of what is factual reporting of news and what is opinion. I think another element to this that makes it hard to distinguish is that there's just such a high volume of opinion pieces now. And I guess I don't really have a good benchmark to say that it, you know, it used to be this percent news and this percent opinion and whether that's changing or not, but it, it certainly well, you could feels ju- like, I mean, you could just say the world in general and not even just, you know, within news publications. Sure. Yeah. This is an opinion show. You know, we do our homework and we try to stay adequately informed, but we're not doing original research typically. We're not trying to just give you a rundown of facts. We've done that before. We don't like that as much. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely a proliferation of opinions, and that's what seems to get shared more often. But you have to keep everything in its context instead of just running wild with whatever seems to strike your fancy. Cause that seems to be the real problem of it is that you'll hear an opinion piece that agrees with your viewpoint. And then you codify that into your only source of information on the topic. And it ossifies from an opinion into a dubious fact. Yeah, that's, that's the, yeah, that's the rubber meat in the road. Um, and, and, you know, just the point from the lawsuit that the viewers of Tucker Carlson know it's an opinion show. No. No. I don't believe that they do. Um, <laughs> just not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be interested to see if that argument is taken at face value by the courts. <sighs> Well, you know, I don't know. It's just, again, it's not even just Tucker Carlson's show, which is, I I think, you know, horrible because he peddles in, in uh, white nationalism and uh, tries to present himself as the everyday man when he's the heir to the Swanson frozen food fortune. Um <laughs> So, and he already got kicked off a show once when Jon Stewart destroyed Crossfire on CNN. Um, (laughs) So, it's crazy that he's still around. And it's weird because Tucker Carlson, in a speech to uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, um, I think it was something in like 2013 or somewhere during the Obama years, gave a speech where he basically said that you know, the conservative world needs its own New York Times, a publication that has immense credibility, does its research, does its homework, and really figures things out and presents it in a, you know, a full-throated, you know, defensible position and not just kind of fragrant gesticulation. 
And he did that, and then he founded a new news website where the cornerstone of its business models was lists of women, uh, photos of women scantily clad, and then went on to be on Tucker Carlson Tonight, which, as argued in court, is uh, the wild gesticulation hour that has (laughs) no founding in reality. So, yeah. I Tucker Carlson, not a fan. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Now, are we are we exploring this in good faith? Well, we'll get into that after the drum beat. Here on Adequately Informed, a core principle that guides our content is discussing things in good faith. So for our main segment today, we want to talk a little bit more about what that means to us and then apply it to what we consider to be some very bad faith arguments that we received on our post from a couple weeks ago. And I would encourage you to check out the post from a couple weeks ago on the Facebook page. No matter where you're listening, go check it out on the Facebook page. Don't feed the trolls, but you'll get a sense of what we're dealing with. But anyway, Joe, what types of things go into making a good faith argument in your eyes. So the idea of uh, good or bad faith comes when you're arguing against something or up, you know, uh, there's some interlocutor on the other side. You're making an argument about someone else's argument and good faith means to take the other person's argument at kind of the value that they want to assert it at kind of in the best case scenario for what their argument is. So arguing in good faith is like take an example of someone says that they believe that there should be lower taxes in society and that government should be smaller. Now, a good faith interaction would be taking that that there, there is the possibility that someone would want to just kind of inherently through their own devices and believing in the bettering of the world, believe that a better world is achieved through uh, lower taxes and a smaller government, whereas a bad faith version would be just to directly call them racist for wanting that because there are a lot of racists who believe in a smaller government because they don't want welfare and other social programs be going to people of color. That would be taking their argument at the worst possible angle. Now, there it gets tricky when people have histories of what they support and patterns of what they also support and how that leads to things. But at least the general idea is that you want to take someone at their word and at least give their own argument at least some charity when you're arguing against it. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. And just to add my own spin on it, I kind of think of good faith discussion as coming down to figuring out what someone's motives are. Good faith discussion kind of looks at an idea on its own plane 
and tries to genuinely stay on that same plane. Bad faith, when we talk about bad faith negotiations, that's saying perhaps I have a hard line that I'm going to stick to, and I'm not actually going to listen to what you have to say and have it affect what I'm going to say. I'm just going to basically be arguing against myself or in a discussion of ideas, a bad faith discussion would be arguing just to advance your own point at all costs. Good faith requires that you hear people out try to absorb what they're saying from their perspective and then give thoughtful responses that are modified based on that information that you've received. Right. So one of the hallmarks of good faith conversation and argumentation is that in the light of new evidence that may be contradictory to your uh, viewpoint that you will take that information in and modify what you believe or what you argue. That is part of good faith conversation. But if you are acting in bad faith, you're not are you're not trying to argue for what you believe is best based on the facts. You're arguing for a set position no matter what the facts are. Yeah, and it comes back to motives. Are you motivated to try to reach an intellectually honest conclusion, or are you arguing to propagate your own views? And it's highly subjective because people don't admit typically to talking in bad faith. And another thing I want to clarify, too, is that there's a philosophical concept of bad faith that's distinct from what we're talking about. So if you have a little bit of philosophical knowledge and you're saying, what the hell are these guys talking about? It's completely different. But all of that is to say it's good faith discussion that actually leads to productivity in the so-called marketplace of ideas. It's productive discourse that is capable of leading to a change of opinion and that is not always achievable unfortunately yeah it, it, to get it into even a little bit simpler version a good faith conversation is about the means but a bad faith conversation is about the ends in some light um yeah, that's a pretty good distinction. Yeah, a good faith conversation is you're having the conversation to have the conversation and to get something out of it and could get something out of it. A bad faith conversation is a a, a, gov- a conversation solely guided for a specific end. Yeah, and maybe that's a good good way to refine it just a little bit is that I'm sure that in both good and bad faith discussions, ends and means will both come into play, but the ends are the driving factor of a bad faith discussion and the means are the driving factor of a good faith discussion. Yes. So. Now, yeah, unfortunately on social media, most of what you're going to say, most of what you're going to see is bad faith arguments. And Joe and I experienced that firsthand a couple weeks ago, as I alluded to earlier, on our episode about the murder of George Floyd. 
And we got some horribly bad faith arguments in response. People who clearly didn't listen to the show and weren't interested in actually having a productive conversation. People who just saw a post that they assumed disagreed with them and wanted to assert their own opinions and to avoid. So what we're going to do for the rest of this main segment today is to examine some of these arguments these bad faith arguments that we received and then talk about how to respond to them. So here is can I, argument number one. Can I one. get into something yeah, right before? So we, yeah, we please. you know, because both Evan and I are liberal or, you know, tend to be on the left side of, you know, the political spectrum, you know, we tend to see a lot of, or we believe we see a lot of bad faith in argued in conservative circles. But one way that, um, definitely happens in liberal circles is that um, we see this sometimes where there will be something that may be contradictory to whatever a left narrative is. And then people online will just be like, I'm not even going to read it. I just know this is bad. And that's a form of bad faith argumentation of, mm-hmm. you know, it could be that if you came out and read that thing, Maybe it is still in bad faith and you don't need to argue against it or or be expected to. But just saying that you're not going to read something because it may disagree with you is a form of bad faith reasoning. Um, yeah. Now, I, I tend to believe that if you have a truly correct opinion and uh, something that you know is true to you, it should be able to hold up to scrutiny from someone else, um, from mm-hmm. somewhere else. So even if someone feeds you something that is wrong, your own opinion should still be able to hold up to it. But anyway. Yeah, perfectly reasonable. So here is bad faith argument number one. Derek Chauvin is a piece of shit and he should be punished to the full extent of the law. But dot, dot, dot. But. So what do we say to people? It's it's essentially a distillation of the bad apple narrative that, you know, we, we can't stop these people from going rogue and murdering and we just got to hold them accountable. Yeah. Well, that's the, <laughs> you know, you, you would think you would want to try and prevent things from happening. Um. It's just, uh, it's like a scapegoat. Get out of jail. And my thought on it is, yeah, I'm glad we can all agree that Derek Chauvin is a piece of shit. But hopefully at this point, we can look beyond the actions of just him and maybe consider the officers who held George Floyd down. The officer who blocked people from intervening. Maybe we can look at the Minneapolis Police Department, who despite all cases of prior misconduct, made him a training officer. And when we start to realize how many people are complicit in creating the situation that led to George Floyd's death, maybe it's not just the actions of one person. Maybe it's an entire system that doesn't care about black life. You know, um, funny enough, recently I actually talked to someone who lived in the 
in the Twin City area at, at one point and learned or had this insight that um, so there's Minneapolis and St. Paul. They're right next to each other. And he had this insight that the two police departments had differing philosophies. Um, this isn't so much on our conversation on good and bad faith, but just an interesting tidbit is that the Minneapolis police had a culture of kind of like an authoritarian rule, like the big bad boss because we're the big bad boss. Whereas the St. Paul Police Department had an ethic of we kind of have a bank of good relations with the community. And anytime we want to do something outside of that, we got to see it as a withdrawal from that bank and have to pay it back at some point. So just something interesting that uh, an insight someone gave to me who lived there. Yeah, that is interesting. And maybe we can fully flesh that out later. Um, it's, it's definitely, I think attitudes are hugely important when we think about how we want to construct policing into the future. Number two, bad faith arguments. George Floyd shouldn't have broken the law. What, what do you say to that, Joe? Mm. It sounds like from that point of view that if you, um, <laughs> If you break any law that could be crowned to be killed. To me, at least. I mean, I may be taking them at bad faith, but yeah, that's uh, that's my view. No, I don't, I don't believe that's taking it in bad faith. I think that the bad faith that we're responding to is just the utter oversimplification of the issue. There is no rational or legal or moral code that we live by in the United States that says your utmost compliance with law enforcement is demanded or you are liable to be shot on sight. We have due process in this country. Even when people break the law, there is a system that we are supposed to go through to mete out justice and punishment. It's called due process. It is one of our fundamental rights. So to say that George Floyd shouldn't have broke the law is to be completely dishonest about what our legal and law enforcement systems are built to do in this country. Yeah. Police departments are not tasked with any sort of punishment as a result of crime, um, even though they may in some sort of popular imagination believe that they are responsible. But that any sort of... Uh, punishment is handled by the carceral state, but um, you know we have differing uh, you know opinions on how they're you know versus how they're actually handling punishment for crimes. But regardless, um, a death sentence judged by seemingly one man does not fit any crime, really. Yeah. So. So if if people are trying to throw bullshit at you about how people just need to obey the law. It's important to remember that failure to obey the law is not a death sentence, not an instantaneous death sentence in any circumstance. The, and the reason anyone, I mean the, the acceptable justification 
for when a criminal is killed before a trial in, you know, out in the world is because that person would pose such a great threat, either immediate or long term threat that letting them go would be worse than killing them right then. Mm-hmm. That's the justification. Um, you can argue about that, but that's what the justification is. That was nowhere close in the George Floyd case. Not remote. And he, w- yeah. and, he, and he was already arrested and at least in the car for some period of time before he got knelt on. So this is just a brutal case of a murder. Mm-hmm. Bad faith argument number three. Hey, you know, Democrats are racist too. Mm. Mm. You see, the Democrats were the party of slavery. Don't you know? Don't you know? (laughs) And there was never a great realignment, ever. And, you know, it's crazy that all these Democrats want to take down the statue of Confederates because they were Democrats. Huh. Hmm. Crazy. Crazy. So my response is that two things can be true at the same time, right? It's not lost on us that George Floyd's murder occurred in a blue city in a blue state. All right. That didn't save him. And it's clear that the racism was still alive and well and contributed to his death. And we know that Democratic leaders are not immune to saying and doing really hokey and downright problematic shit. I mean, look at the comments and actions recently by Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. It has really been wanting in terms of a truly culturally sensitive response. But we're not trying to ignore that. Like I said, though, that one thing can be true. And the second thing can be true that the Democratic Party in recent years has become a much more diverse and coalitional group. So it's not worth it to get sanctimonious about the racial superiority or the sensitive, the, the, the superior sensibilities of the Democratic Party. But at the same time, understand that one of the parties seems to be much more inclusive. Yeah. And also in the face of just a black man dying, what does the racism of a political party matter in some respect? Like this is talking about a police. This is talking about police killing people, not a, a party, not so much to say. I actually love that you brought that up because it really just kind of boils down to I'm I'm just going to call it the Ezra Klein principle at this point. Things that you wouldn't think should get sucked into the political discourse become very political. What we saw was a fellow citizen having his rights trampled and his life taken from him. That should be an outrage, period. 
But due to the nature of polarization, we have it linked up with all of these other identities and all of our opinions on seemingly every other issue. It all becomes interconnected. And now it is a partisan issue. And seriously, guys, we're going to say it every freaking week, but read this book if you want to understand more about this. It is very instructive in understanding why this shit is happening. This week and every week is brought to you by Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein and The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. We we should just make like a adequately informed syllabus. Like read these books and then you'll be much better able to participate in our discussions. Right. Bad faith argument number four. Destroying where we live isn't the answer. Uh, I mean, the real issue, I mean, where I draw the line with rioting is that the real issue is that a man was killed. That's the real injustice. Um, Maybe if some people destroy some property, then that's, I mean, it's shitty for the property owner, but that doesn't invalidate the original injustice. Some people act like an injustice can be invalidated by a, uh, a public response of people who were completely not tethered to it that goes to against some of their principles. Like, should... <laughs> Should the actions of some possible looters make it okay that George Floyd was killed because they were rioting against it? Like that that's kind of what the argument boils down to. Yeah. And I've got kind of three responses to this. And number one is actually exactly what you said. So just copy and paste it over here. The number two is that to the extent that rioting and property damage isn't a good solution. Look to who is actually doing the most extreme cases of rioting and looting. All reports indicate that the majority of it is not being done by individuals who are attempting to peacefully protest. There's been a huge degree to which the unrest has been co-opted and it is incumbent upon us to be able to distinguish between the two. Number three, and this I think is less a strong persuasive response than just something to think about, but look at how this critique is framed. Destroying where we live isn't the answer. It becomes important to ask who owns what is being destroyed. It doesn't seem like people are actually destroying their own quote unquote communities. Things are getting thrown through storefronts in gentrified areas of businesses that by and large are not owned by the people in that community. Again, that's not really a a good commentary on the morality of the situation, but if you're going to claim that people are destroying their own communities, look to who actually owns the economic engines in the city. It's, It's like I kind of brought up briefly when discussing do the right thing in my earlier segment when the crowd destroys Sal's famous pizzeria after the murder of Radio Rahim they're not destroying 
something that they own. Sal does not live in that community. So I think it's relevant. Yeah, Arby's isn't the cornerstone of any community. Arby's Um, needs to fucking go. This has nothing to do with race. Arby's is just a really horrible restaurant. You you struck a nerve, Joe. You struck a fucking nerve. You chose to say Arby's. Anytime I fucking eat Arby's, we go into a tirade. Look, I, I apologize, but actually I'm not sorry. Okay, so we did a non-apology. But anyway. <laughs> uh, bad faith argument number four. Or did you have more on that? Um, I may have, but Arby's discussion uh, obfuscated it. So anyway. Bad faith argument number five. Martin Luther King was a great leader, and we should listen to what he said. What, mm. what do you think about that? So I, ex- I actually just uh, recently read a... Another piece by, uh, oh, who is it? Ezra Klein. Um, (laughs) About the idea of a nonviolent state. And it's it's interesting that, um, so Martin Luther King um, was a real, you know, the the idea of the nonviolent protest was very revolutionary. But nonviolent protests have to be planned for them to be truly effective. Nonviolent protest is taking a stand against something, even in the face of everything, even possibly losing your life. That's what a nonviolent protest is. A nonviolent protest is not passivity. It is action without violence. And that's a very hard bar to clear. And (laughs) it seems like we hold our people who have the least um, have the least means to commit violence to this impossibly high standard of no violence when seemingly we let police officers who are the most regular people in our society who have the highest capability to commit heinous violence and we seemingly let them off the hook. So yes, while the lessons of Martin Luther King can be good for building a movement. Um, nonviolence that seems to be asked for in this is just passivity. Yeah, it is a shallow understanding of Martin Luther King's actual work. And to add on to that, I do agree with the idea that Martin Luther King was a great leader, and I do believe that it's important to understand his perspectives on social justice and change and revolution and protest. But it's a little insulting to assume that that is the only black voice worth listening to. If you're going to try to internalize the ideas of Martin Luther King Jr. without reading Malcolm X, you're not really trying in good faith to appreciate the black perspective, you're just trying to weaponize a distillation of a single black voice to support your own concept of the status quo, the definition of protest that is most convenient for you. And that is the ultimate textbook example of bad faith. 
I mean, this may be bad faith on my part, and this is an opinion. This is not borne out by anything. Thank you, or, Tucker. Yes, but <laughs> I I have to wonder. It you know, I wonder if there's a kind of two pronged reason why Martin Luther King Jr. has kind of became a uh, a saint at least in the eyes of a good number of white people, because uh, when he was alive and doing his protests and organizing these movements, he was a hated man in the white community. But one thing that happened was one, he died because kind of in America, anything in the past is apolitical and anything in the present is political. So since it all happened in the past and he's dead and he stays there, it's not political anymore. But then I also wonder if it has to do with the fact that his message was or he chose to go about his uh, change in a nonviolent means and it can be used as a bad faith tool to try and enforce passivity as nonviolence bingo or not. Yeah. And, um, yeah, basically anytime any black person becomes violent fighting for their rights, then all of a sudden it's, well, Martin Luther King jr. Wasn't like that. And he's, he's a perfect man and he achieved all that. Why you're not doing that. So your cause is not worthy. Yeah. When it becomes, again, when it becomes a tool to silence those who disagree with you rather than an open and honest exchange of ideas, that's bad faith. And I think that we both agree in our diagnosis that that's what's going on here. When you hear people talk about Martin Luther King as if that is a mic drop moment to shut down all protests. Now, we can have that conversation. Sure. But it it doesn't mean that these protests or any protest that doesn't automatically align with how King organized his is any less valid. Absolutely. We still have to, it's like applying just one standard to anything and then any movement from then on has to be nonviolent. Yeah. Bad faith argument number six, police kill more white people than black people. They do, but not to the same degree. Not it's, as a uh, percentage of the population. Yeah. It's taking a statistic and turning it in a way that makes it seem like it's innocuous. Um, which it's, it's, uh, it's a misleading. Yes. When, of, we're, when you're examining issues of bias... Raw numbers mean nothing. You have to look at rates of incidents. And when we have FBI data, and granted, there are limits to the data that we have, but by the best data that we have, two and a half times more likely it is for a black man to be murdered by the police than a white man. And that is the salient fact here. Remember, part of the... News 2.0, if you will, credentials for being relevant information is putting things in historical context. And I would expand that to say the entirety 
of the context needs to be shown in order to be protected under the umbrella that we have issued here of good faith. Bad faith argument number seven is that, well, of course, more black people are killed by police relative to their population because they commit more crime relative to the population. This one's a little deceptive because I think this one at face value sounds more plausible until you dig into it. Yeah. So, um, you know what? I think you did more research since this is more of a fact-based one. So I'm going to kick this off to you. All right. Fair enough. When we look at differential crime involvement, you have to acknowledge the role that systemic over-policing plays in crime involvement. Remember, everything that we've learned about the new Jim Crow, about hyper-incarceration, our system is designed to make sure that black men have more interaction with the police than white men. And if you if you grapple with the reality of the way that policing sets black men up to fail and the way that broader societal factors set black men up to fail, because we know that the antecedents to crime are lack of opportunity, hyper poverty neighborhoods. There, there are things that we know lead to higher crime rates and systemically black people are pushed into these positions more and more. And Knowing that, if you still argue that even with all of that, black people commit more crimes and you're saying they're somehow inherently more criminal, then congratulations, you are defending a position called phrenology, which has been disproven for over a century. Ah, yes, the shape of your skull can determine everything about you. Yeah, and... You know, that's it's kind of like making a phrenology slash eugenics argument without actually having the guts to defend that indefensible position. So when it comes to differential crime involvement, the context matters so much. And another thing that I think falls into bad faith, especially when you're having a fact based discussion, is inability to provide the source of your information. One of the things that I saw that came up on the comments was this eye-popping stat that a cop is 18 times more likely to be killed by a black man than the reverse happening. And if true, I think that's a relevant statistic. But I went to scour the internet for it, and all I found was a bunch of places citing that figure without providing some underlying study or statistical basis for it. I could not find the primary research. And if you are reliant upon a figure for which the primary research is not available, you're not going to have much success persuading people in good faith. Yeah. Can I go on a tangent that's only vaguely related? Yes. Okay. So talking about um, levels of crime, a a report came out today from the Treasury about how there are billions of dollars of uncollected taxes 
because rich people aren't actually filing taxes because the IRS doesn't have enough resources to go after them for not filing. That's absolutely ridiculous to me. The richest people are getting off scot-free because they have more resources than a government agency. Yeah. That's just, that's fucking ridiculous. And that's not, and that's not something that's even close to afforded to, um, to, uh, you know, people who are of lower class stature, the, the poor, um, you know, if the poor do it, it's a crime and it needs to be corrected. If the rich do it, they're being savvy. Think about, again, this is such a relevant point actually to bring up because it ties back to that idea of how the system treats people differently. Due to the three strikes laws, you could steal $5 worth of merchandise and be sent to prison for life. But if you wage a calculated lobbying campaign to defund the government tax collecting agency and then stop paying your own tax bill to the tune of millions of dollars, nothing happens to you. And you can interface with that reality or not. That's, that's, I think, maybe the, the single quickest heuristic to understand if something is happening in good faith or bad faith. Is this happening in reality? Is this taking advantage of all the knowledge of the actual world that we have and putting our facts and opinions in that context? Or are we conveniently ignoring things that disagree with us? Yep. So, yep. excellent excellent point to bring up i did see that i didn't look super deep into it maybe you could put it in show notes if you remember yeah cool yeah worth checking out so i've just got one final bad faith argument and this one's a fucking doozy what about black on black crime Mm. so in response to the earlier point about police officers killing white people was the response also that maybe those shouldn't matter and we should worry more about white on white crime. Hmm. But that's even besides the point what we're not, this is not a discussion about curtailing overall murder in the black population This is a specific conversation about how the institutions of our state interact with certain populations of that state and how those interactions are different from those of other groups. Yeah. Part of the bad faith of this argument is that it's predicated on the idea that we can only do one thing at a time. We can only focus on one problem at a time which is patently untrue. We're dealing with problems on all fronts all the time on government and social levels. So to the extent that places like Chicago have high murder rates, cool. Are you actually interested in solving that? Are you willing to address the underlying factors that cause crime? Are you willing to put your money where your mouth is and take steps to alleviate poverty? No? Then guess what? You are just pulling up a straw man to ignore 
this other problem. It's a classical logical fallacy of whataboutism to take a problem and then respond to it by noting that another problem also exists. And it's not topical to the issue that is being discussed. We can discuss other issues, but when you use one problem to delegitimize the existence of another problem, you're not in good faith. Well, and I'll, I'll even go even the more pernicious route of this, where when in light of saying, well, what about black on black crime? What that argument, it, part of what that argument is saying is that because some, so many of those black people just kill each other senselessly, that it's okay for police officers to kill a few more. Like it's not actually caring about the lives of these people. It's saying it's trying to say, Oh look, those people don't care about their lives so much. So why should we? Yeah. Which is disgusting when taken to that extreme, but you know, you know, you know who kills most white people, white White people. people. Yeah. Most violence is engaged between people who know each other within um, within communities or within, uh, you know, circles, uh, social circles. Um, So, yes, there are sometimes cross racial violence because of clashing communities. But most of the time people commit violence within their own communities and because of segregation that means it happens mostly to the same people of the same race. Yes. And that understanding should appropriately contextualize why that is not the issue at hand. The last thing that I want to say on this matter is that there is no group that we can go to to talk to and reform a race of people. <laughs> as, as Ezra Klein said, rioters don't have a union that you can go and put pressure on. You know, you, it's a very difficult problem to solve. But po- the police should be a publicly accountable agency that we, as a voting and taxpaying public, have an ability to shape. And therefore, that's why it makes sense to try to solve this problem. It should be solvable. Yeah. That's why I try to shy away from talking about generalistics of the black community, because, um, uh, another favorite of mine, uh, Jane coast, and she's a writer at Fox often on Twitter. She'll, uh, make jokes that when something happens, that's, you know, related to the quote black community. She's like, Oh, this is going to be a big point of contention at the black community meeting. We're going (laughs) to get hung up on it. We're never going to be able to figure it out. There's going to be lots of opinions on it. Um, as if the black community gets together and, you know, has a coordinated effort of whatever they're doing and to have a coordinated stance. Mm -hmm. Um, this is why, um, you know, having the, black community as a coalition in the democratic party is kind of a um kind of a tough uh makes things more complicated because 
because of the issues of racism and how the Republican Party has responded to things over years, the Democratic Party has almost the has the bulk of the black community in its coalition. But because of their being black and the discrimination they face, but not because of their political ideologies. So black people have just as diverse political opinions as um, every other population. It just so happens that they vote for one party because basically that one party has taken a stance that they'll look out for their issues and treat them as a human. I mean, that's being a bit bad faith on my part to say that Republicans don't care about black people, but that is clearly how it has been decided across the greater black populace in the United States. Yeah, let's just try to massage that into a more good faith idea. It's not to say that the Republican Party flat out doesn't care about black people or that black people can't be Republicans or that, you know, every single Republican is racist. But it is an undeniable fact that in every election cycle, about 90% of African-Americans end up siding with the Democratic coalition. And from there, we can try to understand why that happens. Yeah. So, um, where was I going with that? But yeah, the black community is... They, they have diverse uh, opinions. Yeah, it, they aren't just the black community. It's not if you listen to one black person have an opinion, that means what everybody else is thinking in that community. Um, far from the truth. And that's why diverse and broad spectrum representation is important. It's not enough to watch a Spike Lee movie once and say, okay, I get this. You need to incorporate myriad different voices from marginalized communities so that you can be aware of and on guard against a variety of different interpretations of the same experience. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, at my work, I've definitely talked with uh, some black people who think a lot of these protests are just crazy or the, you know, the riots are overbearing, but that's their individual opinion. That doesn't mean that, you know, it, it makes uh, the protest any, less valid or whatever, because there are definitely people in the protests who very strongly disagree. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, you would never listen to a white person have an opinion and then say, this is what white people think. Yeah. Um, there is given the individuality within the white community and we kind of, what the ask is, is to extend that individuality to um, you know the black community as well, like again to the blacks kill more black. You know what about black on black crime? Like the <laughs> that is saying that the community's failure to stop uh, you know whatever issues that it's having within itself means that the individual George Floyd's death 
is not a big issue because he belongs to that group. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I may have said it earlier, but we would never <laughs> like if a white person was killed and by the police and we thought there should be police reform because of it. No one would ever say, well, you know, uh, white people kill more white people than police kill white people. Yeah. Um, because that individual act is an individual act that happens to an individual, not a quote, uh, member of a collective community that is one. Mm -hmm. And I think this dove, this, this point that you've been really eloquently making dovetails nicely into our earlier discussion of Martin Luther King Jr. Because to say that he is the one voice that speaks for the black community is reductive and insulting. Yeah, because there there were definitely other civil rights leader who believed in violence. Or there were some who believed in not uh, dealing with the issue and just going off and creating their own state somewhere. Um, there was a, Yeah, there was a diversity of opinions on how to handle the situation of unequal civil rights in America. Now, it turns out that Martin Luther King ended up being the most successful, but that wasn't the only opinion that was had within the black community at the time. Not even the only successful one. Most successful, I agree with, but civil rights required a broad coalition of activists working from different angles to achieve similar goals. Yeah. So... You know, while he is the one that all the boulevards are named after, <laughs> uh, he wasn't the only civil rights leader who made any progress. So, Absolutely. And there was there. I mean, there were people who disagreed with Martin Luther King that his approach was worthy or yeah. the way to go. Um, and yeah, I mean, people are people. <laughs> individuals have different ideas it's 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 very rare that you find truly find that a group of people um that isn't organized based on their ideas has the same ideas like saying you know it's one say to say republicans believe this because they're republicans because they believe those things but if you were to say all i don't know lumberjacks think this one thing then no because they're lumberjacks <laughs> they can have a diversity of opinions they they're just the same because they have the same profession yeah um they don't share a collective hive mind like think of think of your work uh, do you share the same opinions of those people because you're in the same job i bet not yeah, not uh, not typically. Yeah. So. So to pull this all together, if you hear arguments like this come up, your best bet's probably not to respond at all because, you know, someone who is saying this is most likely trying to talk about racial justice in bad faith and cannot be persuaded even by strong logical arguments. But hopefully this has given you all a framework for how to think about the arguments you hear and the arguments 
that you make when talking about something that is so important and at times seems so intractable. Yeah. And I could even make the argument that some of these arguments could be made in good faith by some people. Sure. But then there would have to be the, um, you know, seeing the facts and being able to respond to changes that comes to light with new information. But the way the trolls use these is as a as an end. They want to uh, challenge the fact that this is anything worth caring about and that this heinous this heinous act is completely normal, banal, and is totally fine. Yeah, they want to propound their own idea and if challenged, they don't have an interest in dialoguing. They want someone against whom to monologue. Yeah. Yeah. Not to have a conversation, but to talk at. And there's a big difference there. No, there's, I don't know. <laughs> I, I wanted to smart way to just talk at you, but too quick. I'm going to workshop it. I'll see you in a few weeks. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, do you have anything else you want to say, Evan? Um, In terms of an end segment, it just comes down to, do you want to dunk on Matt Gates or do you want to let it go? You know, we could briefly talk about it. All right, It just cool. seems, I you know, I think I'll say my favorite part. Uh, so Matt Gates is a congressman? Congressman, I believe, yeah. Yeah, not a senator, congressman. Um, from Florida, and um, they were in a committee, and um, Matt Gates, who is, I believe, not married and doesn't not have married, any no kids. Yep. Yep. Comes out in a committee hearing, and after being told he's being insensitive on race. And says that he has a son of color. Well, so as I understood it from the video that I watched, a representative from Louisiana who was black was making an impassioned plea for the Congress to do more to protect people of color and to protect, you know, people like his children. And Matt Gates butts in to say, well, what about white people who have children of color. And again, this is why it's just such a great extension of the bad faith conversation because he's not married. He doesn't have a child at all, let alone a black child. And for him to pull that whataboutism out of his ass just reveals the depths to which he will do anything to attempt to play gotcha instead of responding to the substance of the issue at hand. Because the representative from Louisiana's response was, if you do have a black son, I care more about him than you do. And this set Gates into a frenzy. He basically came one step short of demanding satisfaction because the honor of his non-existent family was challenged. And then it got weird. (laughs) 
And then he reported that he had an adopted Cuban son named Nestor. <laughs> and there is no reports that this person was adopted by Matt Gates. There is no legal trail. There is no nothing. And even in the past, there was a uh, photo where it was <laughs> picture with Nestor and it said that he was a congressional aide. <laughs> and and it just got really fucking weird that Matt Gates pulled out this guy who's like, I don't know, in his 20s, maybe late teens, and said that he's his adopted son. And who knows what their relationship is. <laughs> but the funniest tweet that I saw come out of it was, yeah, uh, what was it, two days ago was Father's Day. And it was um, happy question mark question mark question mark day to matt gates <laughs> it's like <laughs> happy whatever you are day <laughs> um so that it went from an impassioned speech to either matt gates having a secret a uh, quasi adopted son or like uh like gaslighting i i don't know <laughs> it's very strange yeah so matt gates you're the adequately informed douche of the week and you're gonna get to keep that title next week because we don't have a new episode yeah the 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 bad faithies <laughs> um he would be nominated for the year-end award for sure if, if you're in Florida, and I know people listening to this, at least, uh, you know, one or two <laughs> are in Florida, p pay attention. Vote them out. Anyway, so I think that brings us to an end here. Evan, do you uh, have any closing remarks? I think that it's important for everyone to work within their own means and use their own talents to build the kind of world that you want to see in all facets that you can control. Yeah. So go to your uh, city council meetings. They have Do lots it. of commissions. Um, <laughs> if you live in a town, they may even have a golf advisory commission. Um, so go to that. Get your opinion heard on golf. Um, but anyway... Uh, we'd like to thank you for listening. We would like to thank Anthony Hish for the music as always. We would like to thank Nestor because <laughs> you got to be going through a really fucking confusing time. Um, but anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>